After 25 years in the fashion industry, I've realized that fashion is not really about the clothes, it's about the people. I'm Laura Van Root-Pool, and this is What We Wore. Vanessa Barboni Hallett gave up a successful career on Wall Street to pioneer sustainability in the fashion industry through her brand, Another Tomorrow. Vanessa walks us through lessons in life and loss and the basic question we all should be asking about everything we buy. Vanessa, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. We've just wrapped up a trunk show with you in Los Angeles and Brentwood, and it was so successful. You have such a, a crazy, rabid fan base, and um, we're so excited to have you in the store. And actually, it's been funny. Like um, We've carried the collection. I guess this is our second season, maybe. I've never seen such a kind of under-the-radar it's not even slow burn. It's like a fast burn. I mean, I, people go bananas over your clothes. It must be exciting. And I hope that you know that. Well, I'm thrilled. I'm always thrilled to hear it. And, you know, really, we're, we're a, a brand built for women and for the future. And so it just, it makes me so thrilled. And we're really, really excited to be working together and to be part of your community. And I, I can't wait to, to many more events in the future. Vanessa, tell me where you're from. I am from Grinnell, Iowa. So that was, oh wow, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit. I of didn't know that. Um, I grew up in a really hippie academic uh, family, <laughs> and my dad's first uh, teaching job as a professor was at Grinnell, and so that is where such I was a nice born. school. And what was it like growing up in Iowa? Well, in a in a really cool college town. Yeah, you know, I I bopped around to a couple different college towns, um, and it was really just this incredibly rich you know, intersection of ideas and creativity. My mom was an artist. Um, and of course, as a kid, I had no appreciation for any of this, right? This was just kind of normal. But it was just such a, a wonderful place to grow up with these intersection of ideas. And frankly, there wasn't a whole lot else to do <laughs> in the Midwest. So there was kind of the, the world of ideas. And then I was, you know, I was a dancer growing up um, as well. And so that was that was kind of my world. And I got into technology kind of early. My dad um, was really active in kind of the earliest iterations of the internet. So I sort of geeked out and got to think about technology as this kind of um, wild and enabling infrastructure, which I think all of this has kind of been the cauldron that's kind of informed another tomorrow and, and certainly me in terms of how I look at things. What kind of professor was your dad? He was a sociology professor. And any kind of concentration or just altogether sociology? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I almost don't even think about sociology work as much because he morphed into really thinking about how people learn and how technology mm. is used uh, to inform how people learn. And that was sort of what uh, took him down this other path. Um, but it was really it was really around uh, around teaching. And your mom, what sort of medium did she use for her art? Uh, predominantly printmaking, which was super cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. So really did, cool. Yeah. She did a lot of uh, printmaking. Uh, later on, she um, moved into photography, but I always think of her for her work in, in print. Uh, lino cut or woodcut or what? What's All of the above. Cut? You know, she really traversed many aspects of the medium. And, you know, because we were in these college towns, there was access to these incredible artistic yeah. abilities. And so, you know, who knows what I breathed in <laughs> as a kid in terms of fumes, but really enjoyed, um, you know, being with her as she was doing that work. 
I always think of printmaking actually as being a math brain thing. It's such a layered, backwards thinking process. I mean, you have to be totally. super smart. I, I loved printmaking. My prints work great, but I, I really enjoyed the process. You had a transformative moment in your life. Your mom died when you were young. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, she passed when I was 18 and it was, um, you know, and kind of both expected and never expected. I mean, it was a suicide and it was really like at that moment wow. in time, it was something that you just you didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about mental health. And, you know, I think having sort of a thing that you always most feared happen really shook me in a major way. And, uh, you know, I did a kind of subliminal pivot. You know, I went from being this really kind of, um, you know, artistic person. I thought I was going to be an architect and took a semester off of school, ended up moving uh, back home. I have a younger sister, uh, ended up being an economics major and kind of just went into this like take care of myself mode and ended up on Wall Street. So it was really... Um, <laughs> a huge moment in my life. And I think it's only kind of looking back, I can see, oh gosh, that really informed a lot of different decisions. And it's been very interesting starting a company and recognizing all of the different ways that kind of a situation like really informs you. So I've, I feel like coming, I've come back to my upbringing, come back to so much of the gifts that my mother gave me as a child uh, through this company, which has been really beautiful. Will you talk to me about how you became interested in fashion? Because I, I, I know that there's there's so much before Another Tomorrow started, but there had to be bits of fashion along the way. For, without a doubt. So I mean, certainly working in finance, it was one of the few areas of personal expression for me. So I had a really like close personal relationship with fashion as an outlet. And I kind of like to push the envelope a little bit. So I really walked that line. <laughs> <laughs> Especially as I kind of got, you know, a bit older and sort of more confident in my career. But it's funny, actually, my mother made many of her own clothes when I was a kid. And I was absolutely mortified, oh, wow. mortified by it. You know? <laughs> I mean, truly. That and these like leopard print leggings that she would wear. It was just in a small town. It was torture. <laughs> truly, truly torture. It's always been a part of my life, and, and it really was it was it was an important part of my life um, as a as a woman professionally. And you know, I, I certainly had never intended to start a brand, and it was only when I took this sabbatical from my finance career, thinking I was going to move into sustainable finance, and I started to learn about all of the incredible systemic impacts of, of fashion. And I thought, this is wild that the way our clothes are made, um, there's such a personal expression of us and it often doesn't match our values. And like, how do we bring that back into harmony and also just model what this industry can look like um, for the future, which to me was really, really exciting. I mean, this was a long road. I mean, you, you studied economics in college. Where did you go to school and, and what happened next? I was first at Berkeley and then I ended up transferring as at Cornell. And I spent my last year at London School of Economics and oh, wow. uh, then ended up um, at Morgan Stanley for 15 years in emerging markets. And, you know, as, as a girl from Iowa, I was really <laughs> curious about the world. And so... Um, I didn't know the first thing about finance, but I did know that it was a remarkable way to, you know, get out there and explore and really understand how the world worked. And so that was just such an incredible gift. Um, and I focused on emerging markets there for 15 years. I actually started out as a derivatives trader. <laughs> so it's like the only woman, which is 
bananas. And do you remember what you wore, Vanessa? Because I do think that in that industry, I would imagine it's hard to figure out what to wear. Oh, totally. I mean, I'm so glad that I don't have more pictures of me in my early (laughs) 20s. It was pretty bad. And I really was, I was trying to figure it out. I do remember... Uh, after my mom passed uh, and I would find any excuse to wear this, I was going through her clothes and I found this absolutely gorgeous, like silvery gray, kind of like boiled wool suit. And it was just super chic and kind of this like line between masculine and feminine. And I was like, wow, I feel like amazing in this. But what I was wearing truly was, I mean, it was some, it was some bad stuff. It was like some terrible like khakis and sweater sets. It was not, it was not good. For many years, it was not good. And did that feel, I mean, for me always, I think you have, what, what I wear really is my mood. I mean, I'm, I imagine that had to be hard to go every day and have some sort of a uniform that really squelched your femininity, I would yeah. imagine, to fit into this male-dominated industry. I mean, you, you rose to be an MD at, uh, at Morgan Stanley. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was tough for a while there, and especially as you know you're you're building your credibility as a woman, and it does feel like you're kind of like hiding yourself, and and then over time, you know, I think I, I got a lot more confident about um, where I was in my career and bringing more of my full self to it, and then I definitely started taking more risks and developed a relationship with Barney's when it was still in New York. <laughs> And I started to really enjoy it. So, you know, and, and I think I've always enjoyed sort of that tension between the masculine and the feminine, which I think you probably see come through, um, you know. In Absolutely. I think it's one of the best parts of the collection, really. So you obviously were really good at your job. When when did it start to become obvious that you were not being fulfilled? I struggled with it for all 15 years, is the truth. It was something that I never intended to do. Um, I came from, again, like this super progressive family, so I sort of felt like the misfit. And so I was constantly trying to find these ways to weave kind of my my upbringing and my values back into my work. And I quit three times, and it was the third time <laughs> it stuck. <laughs> I also think it's, um, you know, it's interesting because I think you also get far enough in c- your career that it's really hard to quit. It was scary. It's, it's one thing to quit five years in, but 15 years in, you're very successful. And I think to let that go is um, very unusual. It was it was hard. And um, I will say the majority of my friends were concerned for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was, really, there was really this sense of, you know, people said it to varying degrees of openness, but it was like, Vanessa, did you just torch your career? Like, what are you... <laughs> I would get these uh, I would get these emails and text messages about, you know, job openings and like openings still within Morgan Stanley and like why don't you come back? And I don't think I really understood until then like what it means to be so passionate about something that you like can't not do it. Yeah. And that was how I felt about this. That's still how I feel about this. That doesn't mean I didn't wake up in a panic on many a morning, like, did I actually torture my career? Because I mean, I, I was thinking the same thing that they were thinking. But I couldn't not do it. I couldn't not take the risk and and see. And so, when you quit the three times, were, um, was this in the back of your mind, or was it maybe you were going to a different company? Was it was it not until you took the sabbatical that this this came to you, or how did that? How this did that this took a while. Um, it's funny. I was actually talking to a girlfriend of mine this morning who was actually, ironically, the only person in fashion that I knew when I started this. Uh, she works in um, at KCD in Paris and happened to be the sister of my college ex-boyfriend. So anyway, oh. <laughs> some crazy connections. But 
Um, we were reminiscing that uh, back in uh, our 20s, at one point, I was really frustrated when I first became a vegetarian that there weren't better looking shoes from an animal welfare perspective. And today, there kind of still aren't. Um, They're pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I had toyed with that a little bit. And she quickly was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, don't don't go this direction. I pretty I kind of put that on the shelf. No, when I when I left, it was really it was more uh, on those various occasions. It was more from like a value standpoint. Like in 07, I went to actually go do a degree in energy and environmental policy up at Columbia. So it was really this idea of like sustainability at the core. Uh, and that's even when I took the sabbatical in 17, like that, I thought I was going to stay in the industry. And the sabbatical, like what did what did you do? Like what was your year? It was a year. It was supposed to be six months, and I told myself that I wasn't going to make any decisions about my career for six months, and I didn't do that at all. So I sort of, <laughs> <laughs> like, zero. You know, it was kind of this emotional safety net to really explore, and so I decided that, well, one, I was interviewing for other, you know, ESG jobs in finance uh, and found something that was pretty compelling, but I was also just trying to be like, really open and curious for the first time and mm -hmm. really try and understand how these major industries were messing up our planet um, sort of right. inadvertently. And pretty early on in that process was actually when I started to fall down that rabbit hole of fashion. And so it was about six weeks in that the, the real seeds of the idea were formed. And I started to really dedicate my energy to exploring what this might look like. Did you know that it was um, a fashion brand that sat, at, you know, in luxury and all these things? Or, I mean, did you know, was it something that you were missing in the market that you wanted to wear? H how did you figure that part out? So that was interesting. Um, that took a while. So especially because my, my first inclination, you know, was not, you know, go, go start a brand. Uh, at first I thought, gosh, is there a way to like create a marketplace that helps people navigate, you know, to these, you know, better products, et cetera. But what I found at the time was that wasn't very likely to work. And that was because one, I think the baseline level of awareness around the issues from a consumer standpoint was not very high. And also just that the product wasn't good enough. Like there weren't, these, yeah. you know, there weren't these brands and there kind of still aren't these brands um, where you have this, you know, mix of exceptional product and real, you know, integrity on the on the the sourcing and business model side. So it was through that process of investigation and through my own process of trying to shop that I basically recognized, wow, you know, brands have a really powerful position with respect to their relationship with the customer and with their partners. And there was just this kind of missing uh, middle in the market where you had women who were really looking for like exquisite luxury quality that was made in a way that really met their values and they weren't, you know, they weren't finding it. And so that was how it really came to life. And then the aesthetic was, you know, the aesthetic was kind of grounded in both my own, but also what I thought would serve really a global population of women who, you know, knew who they were, knew who they wanted to dress and weren't necessarily going to be in the brand head to toe, but where this could form like a meaningful part of their kind of like core wardrobe and a part of their life. When you went to school for sustainability, you have a degree in, in sustainability, correct? I mean, do they do the people that you're you're learning from? Do they have a real understanding of the fashion industry and how how it behaves um, and and all of those iterations from this from selling the product to receiving the product to selling it to the client? 
No, I mean, I think, well, I'm still in the middle of my degree, actually, uh, and put it on pause, but we spent a lot of time in academia. And I think that, um, you know, I think the academia landscape is generally a little slower to adapt to like where the, the practical movement is, although I right. think it can be incredibly, it's incredibly important in having a science-based framework for the decisions that, that we make. Right. But no, I mean, it's incredibly complex and it is indeed the entire system. It's how you package things. It's how you ship things. It's how they then get shipped to the consumer. Um, so we have worked with really a vast array of people who are expert in those specific segments <laughs> to bring it all together. And in a lot of places, you can you can learn the best practices and integrate it. And others like chemicals policy, we had to bring in an expert. Like none of us would right. become chemists overnight. So it's been really interesting. From my perspective and from, you know, trying to be more sustainable in, in our business, I think one of the problems is that it's very expensive. I mean, it's it's prohibitively expensive to, to produce, you know, packaging that is sustainable. I mean, all these things. And so how do, I think for me, like, how do you, how do you make it less of a choice of we're going out of business to have to carry these bags, you know, or or we're saving the world? I mean, I, I don't I don't know the answer, but it, it seems... The, the whole process around it seems really, really expensive. And I wonder how you navigated that. It's it's definitely been challenging. I would say it's it's easier when you start from a blank slate because then you can build your cost structure from the ground up. And so if everything costs 20% more, then you build your overall business off of that. Right. It's really different when you have to try and retrofit, you know, I think a business model um, with higher costs. We also did adapt you know, we adapted our distribution model in order to be able to cushion some of that. So because we were, you know, digitally native um, and we knew that we were going to keep, you know, certain parts like wholesale, like a smaller portion of the business, we were able to cushion the costs a little bit um, and, and make sure that we weren't bringing to market like an even more expensive luxury brand. Because then you're just you're only able to serve such a small range of consumers yeah. And, you know, a lot of it's also less is more. I mean, you remember mentioning like how much packaging you receive. You know, you really think about like the absolute minimum. And so that's yeah. been helpful. I want to read a quote of yours to our listeners that feels really significant for so many reasons. But it says, I felt what I can only describe as a calling professionally for the first time in my life to be a part of the solution in this industry. Was it surprising that that was fashion? Yes, it was very, <laughs> no, it was really surprising. It just, it had never occurred to me. I really, you know, I was, I was deeply in it in the, in finance and really committed to it, having, you know, put so much energy into building my credibility in that space. But I felt such a deep uh, sense of purpose in this work that I just, I, I probably should have second guessed and made a truly new one person <laughs> in the entire industry. And did it come completely from within or did you have supporters? Did you have, I mean, I, I always, when people ask me about starting my business when I was 24, I always say like the, one of the more important things is not to really share it with people because most people will say that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so, true. so did, but did you have champions? I mean, did you have, did you have mentors? Did you have people that really pushed you and supported you? I definitely built them over time. You know, I was really, yeah. really lucky to get a few uh, wonderful introductions early on and people just opened up their network and they opened up their, you know, experience and their hearts and they really helped me make this happen, you know, because it takes 
uh, more than a village to, to build these things, <laughs> to say the least. And particularly, you know, navigating the kind of access that you have to navigate to, to build it. So I had a lot of support, but there were also, you know, to your point about being quiet about it, I was also over time careful because I think that the energy that you surround yourself with when you're bringing something to life is so important. And I knew that there were just some people who weren't going to believe it until they saw it. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, We'll have dinner in 18 months. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and, and with fashion, you actually have to touch it and put it yeah. on to really believe it, you know? Totally. I mean, you can say all the things, but in, until it looks beautiful, makes you feel beautiful, it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's not really a thing. Yeah. Or it's a different thing. Yeah, it's a different thing. <laughs> concept, yeah. I would say the fashion industry is not the easiest um, business to figure out, and I imagine it's really different from finance. Um, how did you know where to begin? You know, it's interesting. I, I started kind of intuitively. I, I met early on um, Melissa Goldie, who is a CMO for Calvin Klein. Um, and I, I needed to learn how, like, what did it mean to build a brand in the first place? Like, what does that actually entail? What does that mean? Um, so I got a good education on that. And then the first people that we really brought in um, were sustainability experts, because that was the that was the grounding from which I was coming from before the product even existed. And so I needed to understand, okay, academically, I had done all this research on this sabbatical and I needed to talk to people who could help me actually translate that practically into how clothing, how fashion was made. And so we did a, a really significant deep dive there and also looked at, you know, just best practices across the board. And, and that helped us to really come up with like a core framework for how we were going to make decisions. Cause I think that's super important. There, there are trade-offs, you know? We, we really established that. And then, you know, from there, I, I ended up interviewing and, and ultimately meeting our first creative director. So it was just, it was kind of this iterative process. And it was after meeting, and, and I did a bunch of focus groups, actually. Should, that's, that's super important. To mm. I talked to a lot of women about their relationship to fashion and fashion's relationship to their just experience, lived experience as a woman and their values. And so it was just kind of this iterative huh. process of bringing people on board, you know, as we needed them. Um, and then it really ramped up uh, that sort of summer of 2018 when we really built like sort of the foundational team for the company. You met Jane Chung, your your first creative director early on. Did you agree from the start on materials and what, what was important about the brand? At that point, we were still really naive about what we were going to be able to find in the market. <laughs> so <laughs> we thought that we would be able to, you know, because at that point, sustainability was at least kind of part of our lexicon. And we thought we'd be able to find a lot of materials um, that met our sustainability criteria and also met um, the luxury criteria of quality and hand feel. And it became apparent within about six weeks that that was just not the case. <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. <laughs> and so we ended up creating almost entirely custom materials. Wow. And, and then really uh, designing into them. And that actually started with just asking questions and ending up in the at the farms in Tasmania, where we ended up sourcing our wool and then building all these partnerships up the supply chain in Italy and Portugal um, to bring the materials and the collection to life. And talk about that that relationship at the farm level. What what does that mean, and why is it important? It was important to me for a couple of reasons. One was just pure psychology. I think that over the last 20, 30 years, um, as supply chains have expanded globally, we've really lost touch with where 
not just fashion, but everything that we use really, really comes from. And so yeah. I felt that um, to really reestablish a positive relationship with fashion that really respected the clothes, you had to really reconnect to where it came from. So there was that psychological element. But the other just very practical part is that with sustainability, you know, the impact starts with the source. And if you don't know what that source is, and if you don't know, um, you know, just like farm to table, you know, like if you yeah. don't know how the soil is being treated, how the ecosystem is being treated, how animals are being treated, it's really difficult to actually say you're having an impact. And so I wanted to really take that same farm to table framework to fashion and, and develop those relationships from the ground up. And so that's, uh, that's, that's certainly why it's been important to us. There's a story about Dries Van Noten that um, one of his early collections contained embroideries, and he worked with this one family in India that did all the embroideries. And once he did the collection, he realized he had essentially built a business, and if he didn't continue to do embroideries with his family, they wouldn't have the business. Yeah. And so every single collection that he does includes embroideries. And you and I always buy them. I mean, it's always so special to me to think of that family you're supporting, yeah. you know, generations of, of people. But I mean, and that's almost like the original sustainability, you know, it is. to think in, in that way. When did you enroll in the Earth Institute? And talk to me about that a little bit. What's it like to go back to school? Hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I went back. um, So I'll I'll, I'll take it back a step. So when I left, uh, I initially left in 07 to go do this degree in energy and environmental policy at Columbia. And then Morgan Stanley pulled me back and said, oh, you know, you can do both. You can do both. And then the crisis happened. And so I kind of left the degree by the wayside. And so then when I took the sabbatical, I thought, okay, well, this is also an opportunity to dip back into that. And at that point, um, you know, Columbia has the biggest group of climate scientists of any, I think, academic institution, I think in the world, if I'm not mistaken. And so just what they have at the Earth Institute is amazing. And they had this incredible, have this incredible ability to really like take the classes that kind of interest you across discipline. So I thought that was really great coming back at it from more of a perspective of wanting to just like purely learn and curiosity relative to like even the degree itself. So that was really great. Um, The first class that I took has also been really informative, which was around uh, environmental law, actually. And, you know, I grew up, um, I'm, I'm an 80s baby and and I grew up, you know, (laughs) and near, near the Great Lakes region area for part of it. And so I really saw, you know, the environmental degradation and this class around environmental law, uh, it reminded me of actually how much we can do from a positive standpoint and like the incredible legislation that was passed in the seventies. It was really just a game changer for this country. And it gave me so much optimism that, you know, across party lines, like we could come together and make these decisions um, that were really hugely important for our planet and, you know, for our future, our kids' future. Um, And it also helped to really make policy a part of like our foundation at Another Tomorrow, where we're thinking about not just can we buy the, can we create these clothes, but can we also help people to make an impact as citizens? So that was really great. Um, But yeah, the school part of it, writing papers at this point in my life is (laughs) not my favorite thing. (laughs) (laughs) The last time we were in market, I learned about the QR code on your labels. Will you talk about that? It's fascinating. You know, technology 
by itself, I think is, is not a panacea, but it's such an incredible like enabling mechanism. And so we found that if we were to create unique digital identities for all of the products that we make, it would allow us to tell each of those product stories in, in a unique way. And so, and to do that in a really transparent way. So every single item that we make does have its own unique digital identity. It um, comes about in the form of a QR code on a care content label. And so you can scan it and today you can see three different things, um, but principally it's uh, supply chain transparency. So you can see, you know, in most cases, um, all the way back to the farm, uh, starting with the agricultural yeah. cycle, how how the garment was made and, and why we made the choices that we made, why, why they matter. So it's there for the curious. Um, it's also now fueling our resale channel, which we're really excited about. But it's really this, you know, it's this connection between the woman who buys this uh, product and the, and, the, and the piece to really understand its story. And what are some of the questions consumers should be asking brands to answer? I try and boil it down uh, to one whenever I can, just because I think it's such a complex space. You know, to your point about Dries, I think the most powerful question that we can, that we can ask is, was the person who made this paid a living wage? Um, because I think it's the most underappreciated aspect of ethics and sustainability. I guess it's, you know, it's a lot sexier to talk about material science than it is about, right. you know, paying people fairly. So I really advocate for people to just ask that one question. And, and then beyond that. <laughs> and, the, and at that point, Zara and all of these brands would be out of business if people ask that right? question. It, right. But then it, it just, it cuts through so much of the BS, right? Yeah, totally does. It's really simple. Super simple. Like, so I, I always say, if you ask one question, that's the question to ask. Because every, you know, right now it's like in fashion to be sustainable and people are going to talk about whatever they can. But that I think really tells you where folks' values are. And then I think just being curious and asking questions in general, like, where did this come from? Like, where is this cotton from? Just like you would your food, you know, where, right. you know, and, and I think almost like treat your clothes like you would your dinner. Well, and I think that was the thing always early on in this movement, I guess you would call it, was that, you know, faux leather or the, the amount of energy it took to create it and then the fact that it never goes away. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're like, I don't even know, this doesn't even sound right. I can't, <laughs> but yes, I, I love that answer. Um, it's, that's really helpful. Will you tell us more about your resale channel? You know, we really think about clothing as an asset, first and foremost. Like, how do we change our relationship with what we wear back to clothing really being an asset? And so we started to talk to our, our community early on about resale just when we first launched because we wanted to, to say, like, look, we're going to be here for you, you know, all the way down the line. And then, of course, as a new brand, you have to wait until the right inflection point to actually open that up because you have to sell product <laughs> before you can resell product. Right. But fundamentally, the way that ours works is it's consignment based. So if you want to sell something, you scan that QR code on the care content label. You select what condition the product is in. Based on that, you will know exactly what it will sell for. So there's total transparency uh, to the seller. If you think that that makes sense, click a box, you get a shipping label, it comes to us. We quality control it, we clean it, um, we make sure that it's exactly that right condition, and then we put it up on the website. So you know that it's totally brand intermediate. It's like BMW certified pre-owned cars, basically. Yeah. And has it been successful? Yeah, I mean, it's brand new. I just launched in the middle of April. 
Um, but the reception has been amazing from both buyers and sellers. And I think it, it also helps to really kind of democratize the access to super high quality product, which is something that I, I think is important as well. Do you think every brand should have that? I do. I do. I mean, yeah. it takes a minute. I mean, the, the technological integration, especially when you're doing with digitized products, like it's not something you can do overnight. But I think that fundamentally, particularly, you know, it, it, cre- it creates an incentive for brands to create really long life cycle products. And I do think that, you know, over time, we're going to see more brands migrating in this direction. What's the most frustrating thing for a person not bathed in fashion or born into fashion (laughs) to have to deal with in this industry? It is one of the most inherently (laughs) speculative industries I've ever seen in my entire life. Somebody somebody corrected (laughs) me. As a finance person, I, I find it insane that we create all these things that we hope that somebody wants. Yeah. Somebody corrected me that actually film is worse because <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like create putting all this hundreds of millions of dollars into one movie that you hope. Yeah. People- I mean, cause at least you can wear clothes. Yeah. You can wear clothes. <laughs> but I, I think that that's like really a lot of the crux of the problem, honestly, is when there's so much risk involved, you know, it, it, that all gets pushed out throughout the system. And so we've been thinking a lot about, how can we be like as demand responsive as possible, you know, without taking the magic out of it either, because it's such a beautiful creative industry. And so I think that's always the dance. What are you most excited to wake up every day um, to, to accomplish? Or to, what are the challenges that, that keep you waking up and getting excited? Oh, my gosh. I mean, there are so many. I, I think I, I realized, I think at some point down the road, that this is just such a perfect job for me because it lets me really kind of operate all these different intersections of disciplines and ideas. And so I think the spark comes from different places. I would say, you know, what really makes my heart sing are, you know, the women that I've gotten to know through building this company um, and seeing them, you know, with the product and just the fact that it makes a difference in their lives and they connect with it and they connect with the brand. So that's amazing. But I, you know, I love being on the farm and like, I love the technology aspects and, I love our team. And so, you know, it, it's different flavors every day, but um, it's really, it's it's an honor. And I'm really grateful to be able to do this work with these amazing people. Along with school and running a brand and all, all the other myriad things you do, you also are a stepmother to three little people. How, how little are they? <laughs> they, are, they are less little these days. So they are 11, <laughs> 13, and 15. Oh wow, um, that's a that's awesome. a state keep you up at nighter. Oh yeah, <laughs> I get I get the best questions from them, so that's yeah. really cool. They they keep you real really honest, and it's been super interesting to see how they relate to clothing in their lives and how this is kind of working generationally. But yeah, that's they're wonderful. I've got those three guys. I've got two dogs. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, you're busy, uh, busy, grateful and busy. And Vanessa, tell me also, uh, is your dad still with us? No, unfortunately he passed oh. uh, right about this time last year. Oh, I'm so sorry, but he got to see you start this brand. What did he, what did he think about it? He was so proud. He was so proud. Oh. And uh, I think about him a lot and uh, I'm, we've started to do not just me, but several of my colleagues as well. Um, more teaching. So we spend a lot of time at a number of the academic institutions, both related to and not in fashion. And that's something that feels really meaningful to me as that connection back to him. 
Absolutely. There's a lot of sociology in what you do too. <laughs> it's true. It's true. What do you think your mom would have said about your creation of Another Tomorrow? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. I, you know, I think she, I think I like to think that she'd be proud. You know, I think it's um, one of the things I really admire about her is that she really brought like her full self to her life. And I, I think that she would see that in another tomorrow, that like I kind of finally got there. Vanessa, I, I'm excited to hear your answer to this. We, we ask all of our um, guests what they wore to the prom and I'm thinking in a college town, you had a cool dress. Oh gosh, what did I wear to the prom? Um, <laughs> by then I'd actually moved to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, what did I wear? I remember loving that dress. I kind of felt super chic in that dress. I'm going to dig up that photo. I don't remember. I, but it's hilarious because I've been watching, I've been seeing other friends, um, kids prom pictures on Instagram, which is like a whole other yeah. level of prom. <laughs> yes, it is. Right? <laughs> I have a 17-year-old daughter. Yes. And what about your first piece that you made for Another Tomorrow? Or your favorite first piece? I... I think first and foremost, I fell in love with like the jackets because some of my favorite jackets that I had, they looked beautiful, but like I couldn't move my arms, which was right. <laughs> crazy. The high arm hole. Yeah. You were, you were buying French jackets. I was. I was. <laughs> I was like, I want to be able to do that, but I want to be able to move. And, and so that just seemed like, a revelation where they were like super chic, but like you could feel like you could actually move. So I loved that. And then actually what I'm wearing today, I've been wearing this sample for like the last year, which is this like houndstooth jacket where, I mean, I love it in and of itself, but I also love that like, it's actually pretty complex and all the various components and that we've actually been able to create every single one of them sustainably. And you would never know. Like it's like the never knowing part that I love, like the zero compromises. My favorite piece is the pink, hot pink suit. And I, I have to ask you, would you ever have worn that at Morgan Stanley? As a blonde? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's fabulous. It's such a beautiful suit. Thank you. No, that, I mean, that color, I mean, that just flew. I think, you know, we wish we'd made like, Exactly. many times as many as we did um but yeah I mean it's it's so fun when something like that just like resonates and like goes off like a rocket <laughs> thank you so much for sharing all of this this has been fascinating and I think one of the best podcasts we've had because I we've never talked about this before um in such depth and I, I just appreciate you so much oh well thank you so much for the opportunity and for bringing us into your amazing community and I'm just looking forward to spending more time together thank you What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. queencitypodcastnetwork.com.